You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. That's what we've been preaching on lately. Um, And we now find ourselves in the crux of Romans. The pivotal passage that changes everything. And uh, once we get into it, um, once you really start studying this, you find out that like people have spent enormous amounts of time trying to explain this one or two paragraphs in all of Romans. There are entire books written on singular terms within this. There are different denominations that exist based on what you do with your understanding of these kinds of things. So I'm going to kind of hop into, as I've been studying it, give you some of my thoughts on that. But before we get there, we're going to kind of take a, 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 a longer way in. We're going to be talking about the law today. And so I want to talk about the law where it starts in the Bible. Because the law is super boring, right? Any of you who have ever like, I'm going to read the whole Bible. Admit it right now. You stopped when you got to Leviticus. Admit it. You did it. We all know you did it. I did. Tyler made it. He's shaking his head at me. Okay. Some of you are better than the rest of us. Your reward in heaven will be great. Um, but when we, when we get into Leviticus, like, it's dry. It's hard. I don't want to read a whole lot about bodily fluids and what makes you clean and unclean. We won't even go there. Anyways, um, but we are going to hop into the law. One of the things that you need to understand in ancient times was that promises were a huge deal. And I was taught that growing up. I don't know if everybody's gone through that. Raise your hands if, like, your parents instilled in you that promise, like, you don't go back on your promise or they will break your pinky off. Okay, a few of us. Yeah, that, that was, that was kind of me. Like, if I promise something, I have to hold to it. Um, promises in the Old Testament were like, it feels like life or death situations. <laughs> like Abraham, God comes and promises Abraham and he sets up this whole promise ceremony because they had promise ceremonies. But we do that, marriage, right? That's a promise ceremony. But they had these promise ceremonies over all different kinds of things. And so for Abraham, one of the things that they did was God said, we're going to practice your promise ceremony. I want you to go find a few birds, uh, a few other animals. I want you to chop them in half and set set the halves like, um, you know, make a walkway with them. And we're all like, okay, a little morbid, but all right, whatever. This is what they did. Now, usually... You would then, the person that you're promising, the two of you would walk down this path that you just made between these animals' carcasses. And it was a way of saying, if I go back on my promise, may it be done to me as it has been done to these animals that I too would be chopped in half. You know, things like that. That's pretty intense. That's pretty, you don't do that these days when you promise someone something. (laughs) Uh, Jesus. Jesus actually takes it to the next level, but it's nowhere near as morbid. For Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Hey, stop promising each other and just be good people who do what you say. (laughs) Jesus is like, stop swearing on your pretty floral bonnet and buy a stack of Bibles and the Word of God and stacked up to heaven. Just be people who, when you say you'll do something, 
you do it. Follow through with your commitment. So Jesus like kind of does away with like the intense promises and imagines a group who follows him who just are faithful to the kinds of things that they say. Okay, so that's like an example in the Old Testament of this crazy level of promise. God made a promise with Israel at uh, Mount Sinai. And it's a, it's, a, it's a different kind of promise. This was known as a vassal treaty. And so basically what a vassal treaty was, it, it was this. In ancient times, um, people who were of an inferior party would make an agreement with someone in a superior party. And it would be a promise of sorts that like, here's the agreement that's on the table. We on the inferior side will follow through. And the superior side will take care of us because of that. So in Israel's case, it's Israel, the inferior, with God, Yahweh, the one true God, the superior, making an agreement that they will live by the law that God sets in place. And it starts off pretty easy. I mean, later it becomes like 613 laws, but when it starts, it's like 10. <laughs> you know, honor your parents, don't kill each other, uh, don't covet what you're, you know, some simple, obvious rules that everybody of any culture would agree, like, these are good things. But Israel, eventually, they end up with about 613 to 663. It varies between scholars, but all different kinds of rules that make up the law of what it means to be a God follower. And they make the agreement with God at Mount Sinai. Yes, here are the rules. We're going to follow that. Uh, and then, what was my next part? Yeah. Uh, when you made a vassal treaty in ancient culture, you also called whatever your God was, your spiritual beings, to come and witness to it. And the idea behind this was, let's say Joe and Bob are making this agreement that they're not going to fight over each other's land anymore. Joe and Bob then call their gods down, and, and their gods are supposed to be like witnesses to this agreement. And the reason they do that is because, like, let's say I've, I don't follow through and I fail to my part of the agreement. Well, my gods were present and they knew that I failed. And so, like, they're going to hold me accountable to the fact that I failed. Now, of course, we Christians, we follow one true God. We follow Yahweh. So God is present as a witness. But is God the only spiritual being that is present on Mount Sinai? to witness to this law that is being given to Israel, this vassal treaty. If you follow these laws, you will then be treated as my people. This is the agreement between us. Was God the only spiritual being present there? I think the answer is no. I think God and all the heavenly hosts were present there. And I think you find this throughout ancient times. They go up on Mount Sinai. Mountains in ancient times, and this goes all the way back to Greek mythology, right? You have Mount Olympus where all these spiritual beings apparently hang out. In ancient times, the mountains were thought to be where heaven and earth met. It was like where both places were present at the same time. And so when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, he is not only present in the sacred space on earth on Mount Sinai, but he is also present in the divine council of heavens on Mount Sinai, because he meets God on top of this mountain with the divine council, because where God is, 
There his divine counsel is as well. And the Bible actually paints a picture showing us that there were other spiritual beings present to be a witness. Witness to the fact that this vassal treaty was drawn. It wasn't just Yahweh and Israel. It was God, his divine counsel, witnessing that this treaty was struck between them. And here's just a few interesting passages to, to make my point. The first one we'll find in Psalm 68, 17, which in Exodus, we don't realize that there's other beings present. But Psalm 68 says the chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. And where are they? Sinai. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. So Psalm 68, 17 pictures God's on Sinai and there's thousands, 10,000, thousands upon thousands of angels gathered to witness this. It's not the only place that we find it. Uh, when we get to the New Testament, we see that uh, this idea grows even more so. Acts 7.53, when Stephen, the first martyr, is preaching, he's preaching and he said, You who receive the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. Hold up, where's that in Exodus? <laughs> Why do we suddenly have angels present? Like, okay, we just, we're getting this idea that they're present, but the angels delivered the law to Moses? This is, this sounds strange to our ears. That's not the only place. Hebrews says the same thing. Hebrews 2, 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a retribution, he goes on, but he's referring to the angels being present with the handing down of the law to Israel. Now all this comes because Deuteronomy 33 and the translation that the Bible writers had says that angels were present when uh, the law was given to Israel. But we can actually get even more specific than just the angels being present and just the angels passing on the law over to Israel. Check this out. This is Paul now in Galatians. Paul says something very interesting. The law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And then a strange line follows that. Now, an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. What? This has been counted by some scholars as one of the most confusing sentences in the New Testament. Namely, that second line. Why does Paul talk about a law being put in place through angels by an intermediary and then continues to say, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one? Any thoughts? Caitlin? Yeah, so that would be the general direction I would be going. In the Old Testament, we've talked about this many times before. I'm not going to dive super deep into it, George. Oh, well, it's because that he wanted everybody to realize that, the, that God was one. Mm -hmm. that yeah. There isn't another one. It's just God. Yes. Other yeah, saying God is one is actually like a common kind of greeting in the Jewish culture. So, like, in case anybody thought that Paul was saying, like, there was an angel who was being an intermediary who was acting like God, 
Paul's like, no, 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 God's only one. Now, if you've been with us long enough, you've heard me talk about this before. Paul, I believe, is pushing into this understanding that the angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, is God. He shows up all throughout the Old Testament. Whenever he shows up, the Bible intentionally blurs the lines. Is this angel God or is it not? And the answer is always, yes, it's God. And so Paul is saying not only was the not only were the angels there to witness, not only did the angels pass along the law to Abraham, Abraham, to Moses, who gives it to Israel, but Paul's saying there was a specific angel who gave the law to Israel. And then he stops because God gives the law to Israel. So what do you mean an angel's giving it to Israel? No, no, no. This angel is God, because God is one. Now in the Old Testament, that angel is a manifestation, a physical manifestation of God. In the New Testament, that angel is a being who is put on flesh and dwelt among us, and his name is Jesus. The Bible makes a lot of interesting connections between the angel of the Lord and Jesus Christ being the same person. We don't have time to dive into all of that. But this is super interesting to me to think about because Paul is going to dive deep into all of these thoughts about Jesus and the law. And I think he's already got the thoughts planted up here that Jesus was around when he gave the law to Israel in the first place. Basically, Paul is saying this. God in invisible form gave the law to God in visible form. To give it to Israel. Alright. Recap so far. A vassal treaty is made uh, between inferior Israel and superior Yahweh. In this treaty, Israel is expected to honor the relationship with God by following the law. This agreement is witnessed by all the angels of heaven, the divine councils on God's sacred mountain, Sinai. And God himself in physical slash angelic form gives the law to Israel. All right, this brings us to our passage in Romans today. Romans 3, and this is the passage that people love to talk about and try to figure out what's going on here. But here's Paul's theology, and it is central to Romans because it puts Jesus in place of the law. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned. We talked about this last week. Everyone is guilty of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus... Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation right there, in Greek, that's actually the word that they use for the Ark of the Covenant, where the blood of a sacrifice is, is put on it, on Israel's behalf. So it's saying Jesus' blood is put on the Ark of the Covenant right there to be accepted by God. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, his divine patience, he had passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By, by a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one. See, Paul's using that phrase again here. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the, the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. That's classic Paul for you. <laughs> Throwing law out the window and saying, no, we didn't throw it out the window. All at the same time, making us often very confused. Well, doesn't that make us accountable for our actions? Yeah, and we're going to get more into like how Jesus holds us accountable to our actions, as we've also talked about in a few past weeks. So if you want to go through our podcast, you can always kind of catch up where we're at as well. But how crazy is it to think of Paul's passage here in light of Jesus in the Old Testament bringing the law? Because in the Old Testament, Jesus in angelic form hands us the Old Covenant, which we break over and over. But in the New Testament, Jesus in human form dies for us, though we've sinned, though we've broke it over and over, and he becomes the New Covenant. Himself, Jesus becomes the new covenant. In the Old Testament, Jesus in angelic form hands us rules for a relationship with God. But in the New Testament, Jesus in human form gives us himself as a ruler and invites us to become family. In the Old Testament, Jesus in angelic form gives us the law. But in the New Testament, Jesus in human form becomes the law. The Old Testament, it's rules, and the New Testament, rules turn to ruler. See, this changes everything for Paul and his understanding of how the universe works. He knew that under the law, we were hopeless. Anyone who didn't obey the law, guess what the Bible says if you don't obey the law? You're cursed. You're cursed. Have... Has anyone here not broken at least one of 663 rules? <laughs> no. Therefore, we're all cursed. And it's only by like grace in the first place that, that we are a part of God's family. But we've all shown ourselves. We are each a display to one another that we cannot be good enough, are not good enough. And no human being throughout the history of time can get it right except for Jesus. When the angel of the Lord, when God himself decides to set aside anything that makes him divine, put on human flesh, and then come and live like a human, and actually do it right without sin. Isn't that, isn't that the turning point in one's mind? Isn't it the what? The turning point in one's mind. Uh, how do you mean? The turning point. Yes, but I think we all would admit, like, even now, as we follow Christ, we still struggle with sin. Like, it's, it's made itself clear to us throughout time. Like, sin is a hard thing to, to overcome. 
The law brought nothing more than judgment on humans because no one could live up to it. And Paul's going to get more into that. The, the law didn't help us, but Paul's actually going to say, when we got the law, we got tempted. Because now we knew how to define sin. It's like your mom saying, stay out of the cookie jar. Okay, it's like America's Funniest Videos. You ever watch, you still watch this? Just me? Okay. Maybe you've seen the, the pranks online. Then. You put a bunch of food in front of a kid, you set up the camera and you say, don't touch this, and then you walk away. 100% of the time, as soon as the parents out of the room, the kid's like, you know, like, the kid just sinned against their parent, but it's because they knew, like, in that moment what not to do, and it was so tempting they had to do it. That's how Paul's going to describe the law. The law taught us what sin was. Don't do that. And we heard about it. It's like, <laughs> you know, it, it becomes a temptation just to know what is wrong. The law was a faceless rule book and could be misinterpreted to afflict others. In the final days, when we got to heaven, you know, if Jesus wasn't there, we would get to heaven and we would just be like, oh, well, if we're all held just accountable to the law, if that's how we get through the pearly gates or not, we're all screwed. Like, it's always only by the grace of God in the first place, but if the law was like the crucial crux point of getting into heaven, every human being is in trouble. But Jesus comes along. He lives life the right way. The very law that Jesus gave to Moses, he then is born in a human body and lives up to that law. And then breaks the curse of death. He overthrows the kingdoms of darkness and he's seated in the highest places in heaven. And because of all that, righteousness is no longer found in trying to live up to 663 laws in the Old Testament. Righteousness now is found in the one human who happens to be God who pulled it off. If there was ever a human who could live up to all the rules, they are the example. They are the one. And God took that human and said, you are now on my throne. You're in charge. Which Jesus is God, so it's God talking to himself, right? <laughs> God putting God in charge after he's done all these crazy things through the cross and all this. But Jesus is now righteousness. Jesus is now how you are justified. Jesus puts you in right standing with God. Jesus, uh, you, your ability to be considered just, to be a justice person, to be someone who lives up to what the law means, it's found in Jesus. Your ability to get into heaven now is found in Jesus, not in the law. Your relationship with God is found in Jesus, not in the law. And a lot of us look around like, but how does it really change anything? Like these are just mental gymnastics. Like, it, like Lee was saying, it's like a turning point in your head. But like, how does this actually impact anything, Paul? And Paul had a huge answer for that because the law didn't empower you. It actually made you weaker. Ooh, cookies, right? But Jesus in the new covenant, he gave you a gift, the Holy Spirit. So Jesus looks at you and says, not only can you now find your righteousness in me, the one person who lived by the law, 
but also I'm empowering you right now by the power of the Holy Spirit to live a righteous life, to actually beat sin. For Paul, this changes everything. The Holy Spirit was the one who raised Jesus from the dead. The Holy Spirit was the one who empowered Jesus. And if we have that same spirit in us, then we too are empowered. We too are raised from the dead. We too can live holy lives and can actually beat sin. Now, strangely enough, by turning our attention on Jesus, we can actually complete the law because the Holy Spirit empowers us to do it. Of course, that takes time. Nobody does it perfectly. This is a very specifically Methodist Wesleyan way of thinking is that we believe that sanctification happens over time. That no one's got it right when they're saved and that we keep on growing and becoming more and more sanctified. Our righteousness, our perfection that we get by following Jesus is also grown in us over our entire life as we crucify ourselves with Christ and lie ourselves down on the cross as well. The Holy Spirit changes everything. The new covenant tweaks everything. God's righteousness was once found in the law. God's justice was once in the law, but now it showed up somewhere else entirely. It's in Jesus. And ironically, the law and the prophets hinted that Jesus was coming, that there was something better that would show up eventually. So Jesus lets himself die on behalf of us. And he becomes a sacrifice for our sin. That sin is sprinkled on the altar of God and it's the final sacrifice to ever be made because nothing else can compare to the sinless human. And now those who claim his blood, their old way of life dies and they live by the Holy Spirit into the new world and the new creation as they become more and more sanctified. So now, you can either follow Jesus, who did what the law required, or you can choose to just follow the law and be condemned, because you'll never live up to it. We can die under our own unfaithfulness, or we can live under the faithfulness of Jesus. Most of our Bible translations here in Romans 3 say that... Uh, um, we're saved by faith in Christ. But another way to translate it, the Greek right there, people fight about it all the time, is we are saved not by our faith in Christ, but we are saved by the faithfulness of Christ. In other words, he did what we couldn't do, and that's why we're saved through him. That's right. All right, as we... Get ready to wrap up here. I just want to uh, talk about a, four different ways in which we confuse this really quick. I'll, I'll be short through this. Wrongful assumptions. When we read Romans 3, here are the like extreme ways I see people kind of mess it up. First off, they say, I can live however I want right now. <laughs> Jesus died for me. I am free from sin. I'm free from the old man, from my old body. I now live in the resurrection life. So therefore, I can live however I want now. Why? Because I'm not held accountable 
to the law anymore. I'm held accountable to Jesus. And Jesus threw the law out the window, so don't even worry about the law. I can do whatever I want, and everything that I want to do is okay and right and holy. And that does not line up with anything, anywhere in the entire Bible. In fact, we've already seen in the first three chapters of Romans, Paul saw that people interpreted him that way. Does anyone remember what he said to those people? He said, their condemnation is just. Paul saw that as heresy. He saw it as his words being taken out of context. And he felt that if that's the way that you were going to live based on the gospel of Christ, that you basically were going to find yourself on the side of condemnation. So it is not, I can live however I want now. It is, I live my life in subjection to Christ now. Amen. Secondly, some people say, I can no longer sin. I am free from sin, and even if I did sin, it's not really a sin because I'm perfect and righteous and blameless and nothing could ever go wrong. And the Bible does describe you in some very amazing ways in the resurrection life that you are carrying right now. I don't want to belittle that. But the idea that you can't sin, Paul has already gotten into this as well. He's going to get really into it in Genesis, uh, Genesis Romans 6 when he's like, hey, uh, if you... Uh, uh, are thinking like I can just go sin however much I want. Again, you are missing the point and you are taking my words out of context. But he's already defined sin. He's already said that if we live in certain ways, then we are going to find ourselves in condemnation. Paul is not getting to the point of saying, I can no longer sin. And that can drive me really nuts. I remember when I was much younger, I was reading a book from a pastor who really pushed this idea that I can no longer sin. And it was very strange to me because like the first chapter of this book was he kept talking about this homeless person that would come up to his door, knock, ask for something, and he'd call the cops and get them sent to jail. And they would then get out of jail, come to the house, knock again. He's like, oh, I'll show you. Sends him back to jail. He does this like three or four times. First off, why are you doing that? Secondly, how are you even remotely showing Christ in that moment? Especially when Jesus is like, taking care of the homeless among you like that's that's your ticket into heaven how did he get there well as you keep reading the book you find out it gets to this point of like we can't sin we can't do anything wrong we are perfect I'm like you opened your book with some very gross stuff man and if your theology justifies that and I'm not interested in your theology you can sin you do sin and as you press into the Holy Spirit, you will find yourself continually being sanctified, if we're lucky, to the point where we no longer sin intentionally. Have I met anyone who have done that? I've met one person who claimed that he did, and I don't believe him. Okay, next up. Uh, another wrongful assumption is that good works no longer matter. This does not match Romans either, or the rest of the Bible. Jesus himself, there's like several parables where he's like, if you get to heaven and you haven't done good works, like you're not getting in. Because apparently whatever faith in Christ is, it requires good works. It's defined by good works. The biggest one again being when Jesus goes through the list of have you taken care of the poor among you? Good, you're a sheep, you're in. Have you not taken care of them? Well, you're a goat, you're not in. Good works matter. Tossing the law out the window and saying like, oh, we're done with that. I can do whatever I want. It goes against what, what Paul himself said. In the first two chapters, Paul said we will one day be judged by our works. Even Christians will be put on full display before Jesus and have to own up to what they've done. 
right, and then finally, the fourth wrongful assumption is that the law no matters. No matters. <laughs> law no matters. The law no longer matters, is what some say. And I get how we get there. Paul's very confusing. But at the same time that he's talking about how Jesus has become the law, it's interesting how he ended Romans 3. When he said, do we then overthrow the law by this faith, this faith in Jesus? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. For Paul, I think there's two different kinds of laws. There is the law, 663 commandments, and then there's many times where Paul uses the phrase works of the law. I think many scholars have a very good point that when Paul's talking about the works of the law, he's talking about the identification markers. He's talking about circumcision not mattering anymore. He's talking about uh, um, your dietary habits not mattering anymore. He's talking about cultural law markers that Israel had, that the Gentiles, as they enter into the faith, they don't need those works of the law. They don't need the work of circumcision upon them. They don't need the work of not eating pork upon them. Paul is looking at Jesus, saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, and he is now requiring me to understand what was the law really about. And occasionally I'm gonna come across some of these laws where the heart of it is missed. For Paul, circumcision didn't matter. Why? Because it's the heart that matters. He's already said that in Romans 2. If your heart is circumcised, that's really what that's about. Bearing the work of the law of circumcision, that doesn't matter. So for Paul, the works of the law are done with, but the law itself is still important. Why? The law is morals. The law is good living. Is Jesus just going to be like, well, you used to not commit adultery, but go ahead and just toss that out the window now. Go do as much as you want. No, of course not. That doesn't match anything Jesus has said. Instead, Jesus clarifies the law. What does he say about adultery? Don't commit adultery. Yeah, it starts where? In the heart. It starts with lust. If you're lusting, you're already guilty of breaking the law. If you're hating someone, you're already guilty of murder. For Jesus, he does not do away with the law. He does something else to it. What's the word I'm looking for? Anybody? Fulfills. Jesus does not kick the law out the window. Jesus becomes the law. The very law that he handed to Israel... Jesus comes and fulfills it, embodies it. So whatever the law actually meant, it is perfectly described in Jesus. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes through a bunch of different laws and then turns them on their head. Says, you heard it this way. Let me tell you what that actually means. You heard eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We're ready, Jesus. How should I actually beat up my neighbor? <laughs> is it eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, or is it something like fist punch for fist punch and Jesus instead he's like forgive them <laughs> that's what the law actually meant hold up what what do you mean that's what it actually meant Jesus says the law has not been abolished not an iota not a dot not a little scribble 
but a manuscript is tossed out the window. Instead, the law has been fully manifested, fully makes sense in Jesus Christ. And that's why righteousness is found in Jesus. He is your master, he is your ruler, he is your king. That's what Christ means. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the King. So Christ is not his last name, if you're not aware. <laughs> Jesus King, Jesus Messiah, Jesus Christ. And if that is the title that you give him, then the law of Jesus should be what you are living by. And if you're not, well, only Jesus can judge, but it gives the people around you question as to if you truly do think he's Christ, King, Messiah, or not. And that's the encouragement from each one of us to one another as Christians. Hey, how are you making Christ Christ in your life in this area? All right, let me pray for you. God, we see how in the old covenant the law is the law, but we see how in the new covenant you, Jesus, fulfill the law. You become the law. We see how you empower us to meet your law. We see how you clarify what the law really meant in the first place. That somehow, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, what it actually meant was forgive one another. God, throughout the New Testament, Paul is going to use a phrase at least twice. He's going to use the phrase, the law of Christ. That's how we want to live. And Jesus, we see that your law is not going to line up with the laws of America. They're not going to line up with the laws of Michigan. They're not going to line up with freedom. But we are not people who cry freedom at every corner. We are people who cry Jesus at every corner. Because our interest is not in what is the world telling me is okay. Our interest is in the law of Christ. What is Christ, Messiah, King, telling me about any given situation? That's how we want to live. And that's hard, God. Even with your Holy Spirit, we have to admit Sometimes it's hard, especially when we're dealing with addiction. But we hold true to the fact that we can grow if we really press into you. And if we do find the help, and some of us, we just got to find lots and lots of help because we're that desperate for more of your spirit. I think all of us need to find lots and lots of help, especially in a time where we've all gone through global trauma together. Will you extend that help to us? And we rest in the beauty of the fact that we are saved by your faithfulness. We rest in the beauty that we are saved because we've put our faith in you. And we just rest in the beauty of the gospel. just to live like you. As we look forward to the resurrection, when Paul tells us that one day we will look so much like Jesus, we won't even have to worry about all the trivial things that we have today. One day we will no longer sin anymore. 
because the fullness of resurrection will have made us such moral people that though we were tempted by sin in this life, you will answer our prayers to take sin away. You will do just that. And we will no longer, even with free will, be interested in sinning because the resurrection body is just that glorious. We look forward to the fact that it's coming and we look forward to the fact that tomorrow we can live in that even a little bit more as we put the old life to death and the new life in Christ to the next level. Jesus' name, amen. All right, you're dismissed. I held you a little late, so complain to your neighbor, and then you can come eye for an eye me or whatever you want. For holding you back. Which means forgive. Okay, all right.